Well, last week, Pastor Matt kicked off a, a sermon series we're calling The Bible Abridged, where we're going throughout the entire Bible in five weeks. Now, obviously, we're not going to be able to hit it all. It's kind of a thick book if you haven't seen. But we're going to touch on some high points and some specific sections. Today, we're going to cover hundreds of years of biblical history, so I hope you brought your lunch. Um, I'm kidding. A snack should be sufficient. But we're going to continue on. We're going to kick off. So last week, Pastor Matt went from creation all the way through a guy named Abraham. Abraham is one of the early fathers of the faith. And um, Abraham was called to, to, to be one of God's servants. In fact, God told him, he said, I promise you, your descendants are going are, are gonna to number as numerous as the stars you can see in the sky. Now, for us, that's not a big deal because we have light pollution. But without that, there are billions of stars visible. And this, was, this blew Abraham away. And he clung to this promise. God even made a covenant with Abraham where an animal was sacrificed and, they, and God walked between these animals as a symbol saying, hey, I'm going to make sure that this happens. I promise my word is good. So that's where we're picking up today is with that guy, Abraham. So several years have passed and uh, Abraham is, is still waiting because with, to have numerous descendants, you have to at least start with one. And he and his wife, Sarah, had no children. And they're getting older in age. And Sarah eventually says, you know, God's not providing a child in the way that we expect. So I have an idea. How about we help out? We'll help God. That's what he needs. And so Sarah decides to uh, say, Abraham, why don't you have a child with, with my assistant, my maidservant? That'll be a great idea. And Abraham says, oh, sure, that sounds plausible. And so he does that. Now, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't go very well for their marriage. They, they now have this child from her maidservant. And, and God, that wasn't his plan. Because years later, when they were even older, God made sure that Sarah became pregnant. And then they had a son named Isaac. And Isaac became Abraham and Sarah's son and created some jealousy in the marriage. Family tip, don't ever bring somebody else into your marriage. There's a union between man and woman and God. It's a covenant, right? It is not for uh, maidservants, for example. And so God blesses them with a son named Isaac. And Isaac gets married to a woman named Rebecca when he's older. And Isaac and Rebecca have two twin boys. Now, I've got two boys, and I love my boys, and boys, I also have two girls. Boys tend to play differently than girls do when they're, when they're younger. And if you've got a two-story house and you've had two boys playing upstairs, you know it sounds like that the rafters are going to fall through. You've seen nails come out of the drywall. Like, that's the kind of stuff. But that's, that's what Jacob and Esau kind of are. These, are. these are two twins who are very feisty with one another. In fact, their mother, Rebecca, said that in her womb, it felt like they were, they were fighting each other. And God even told her and said, yes, there, is, there are two nations in your womb. Now, normally, when in, that, in that culture, when um, a father passed away, he would, he would bless the firstborn son to be the new leader of the family, to get the inheritance, all that kind of stuff. God also prophesied, said, in this case, though, the younger is going to serve the older one. And so she's got two boys, two twin boys named Esau and Jacob. Now, 
they're very different in their personalities. Esau is, is, is your um, stereotypical man's man. Esau is the guy who's all hairy, and he's got a souped-up truck with, like, a lift kit on it. And he's the guy who, like, blasts the country music, takes the truck into the woods, finds an animal, kills it, and makes a fire right there, grills the animal in the wilderness, and doesn't eat his steak anything less than blue rare. Right? Like, that's, that's Esau. And then his brother Jacob... He's a, he's a different person. The Bible says he doesn't really like to go outside. He's kind of an indoorsy kind of guy. Jacob's kind of the guy who, who would prefer to um, have, a, have a glass of wine and watch the summer I turn pretty and just keep up with that. But that's Jacob. He hangs out with his family, hangs out with his mom, cooks inside, keeps his nails clean, like it's not dirty outside. That, that's him, but he's very intelligent and crafty. And so we've got these two boys that start to have some major tension. And eventually, Jacob lies, tricks, and connives, and tricks his father into giving him the firstborn blessing. Remember, Jacob's the secondborn, and that's exactly what God prophesied, that the older will serve the younger. Jacob gets that blessing through trickery. So then he and Esau have to depart. They, they split ways, there's tension in the family, and Jacob becomes a wanderer for a while. Through this time, he grows older and wiser, more mature, more faithful, gets married. He becomes a faithful worshiper of God, and eventually God looks at him and says, you're no longer that Jacob guy who you used to be in your former life. You're now Israel. Your new name is Israel. God sometimes does this in the Scripture. When somebody has a drastic change from like an old life to a new life, he gives a new name, kind of like um, Saul to Paul and, and Peter or Cephas to Peter. So God did that here with Jacob. He says, you're no longer Jacob. You are now Israel. And so eventually Israel has a family. He's got 12 sons and one daughter. He's got 13 children. It's like a Duggar thing going on here. And so Israel now is planted in the land of Cana. So Israel has set up camp. He has his family. But again, can't be a family without tension, right? Every family has tension in some way. Here, Israel starts to favor his 12th child, Joseph, his youngest son at the time. He favors Joseph and says, you know, you are the one that I love the most. He gives him extravagant presents. And Joseph kind of takes on that pompousness that his daddy had when he was younger and walks around and, and parades it and kind of brags to his brothers. And now there's a lot of jealousy among the siblings because it's never good for a parent to play favorites. It's never good for a parent to look at one child and say, I, you're more favorite to me than the other ones. Jealousy pain and hurt are weaved through this family. So eventually his brothers are so mad at him that they end up selling Joseph into slavery. And now Joseph has to live a whole new life separate from his family. They lie and tell their father that he had been killed by a wild animal. And Israel and his family grieve and they go about their life. Meanwhile, Joseph is a, is a slave and eventually gets into prison, not because of anything he did wrong, but it's just part of being a slave. 
So Joseph is a prisoner. And eventually, though, as he maintains faithfulness to God, as he trusts in God, even though it's struggled to be in prison for many, many years, God lifts him up and he elevates him to second in command in Egypt. He, he goes from slave to almost king. God give, gave Joseph some, some special gifts. He could interpret dreams, and he, God would show him visions. And one of the visions that Joseph had was that the land was going to be, have seven years of plenty, lots of food, lots of supplies. Everything was going to be great, lots of rain. But then after that would be seven years of drought, of famine. And so Joseph sees this and prepares for those seven years of drought in the seven years of plenty builds up the storehouses, stores extra food, all these things. And when this drought hits, Egypt is well off. Egypt is prepared. But the surrounding nations are really struggling. And it's in this time, decades later, that Israel sends some of his sons to Egypt. He says, we're we're, we're dying here. We've got no food. We need supplies. I heard Egypt has stuff to sell. Go buy it in Egypt. So they go. And eventually... This brother, who is now almost king, is reunited with those brothers who sold him into slavery. Reunification happens, forgiveness happens, confession happens. And eventually, Joseph invites his whole family to just move to Egypt where they will thrive. So Israel takes up his kids, takes up his family, and moves them to Egypt. At that time, he was a small tribe, just a family of about 70 people, which included the 12 children and grandchildren and maybe some servants and helpers. About 70 people camped out in Egypt. And it was good for them. It was a good life. Eventually, they all pass away. Time goes on. And we, we fast forward in Scripture about 400 years. And this group of 70 of Israel's family has now multiplied and is now about two million. They're no longer a family from Israel. They are a nation of Israelites. And so this nation here is thriving in the Egyptian community and the Egyptian culture. But the Pharaoh, 400 years later, this Pharaoh says, I don't trust these people. They could, they could step up and overthrow our government. So he enslaves them. The people cry out to God. And eventually... God sends a helper, a guy named Moses, who says, I will be the mouthpiece of God. And he tells Pharaoh to let the people go worship in the wilderness. Let God's people go. And he does this over and over. And Pharaoh says no over and over and over. And God sends plague after plague after plague to try to tip the scales in Israel's favor, to try to guide the hand of Pharaoh. And his heart gets harder and harder, and he rejects it. And he digs his heels in. And he just says No. Until eventually we get to the 10th plague, which was in our reading for today. Where God takes away the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Now, when we, when we hear about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, sometimes if, if you're familiar with Scripture at all, you kind of, you know these names. In fact, they're even echoed throughout Scripture saying that the, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're great God, great guys. They, they, they worship God. They were faithful. But I just want to make sure that we don't think that they're like uber spiritual or that they've got some next level above anybody else. 
they're, they're normal people like you and like me. In fact, we see a lot of their good things, a lot of their faithfulness can be modeled, but they also did a lot of not-so-good things. Like Abraham was afraid for his life when he was entering a new country, and so he said, you know what, uh, if they think you're my wife, they're going to kill me to have you, so let's just lie and say you're my sister, and then they can just take you anyway. How about that? Then I'll stay alive. And uh, God didn't like that and didn't allow that to happen and protected her. And then, and then a little bit later, Abraham did it again. And then his son Isaac did the same thing and, and tried to sell off his wife to save his own skin. And I told you about Jacob, who lied and, and tricked his own father and lied to him and pretended to be his brother just to get the blessing. So all of these guys are similar to us. We may not have done those things, but we've done other things. We've all been rebellious against God. We've all been, we've tried to be faithful, but we also were rebellious. And the, they were too. But the, the beautiful thing about God is that that can't stop him. He didn't wait until Abraham was perfect. In fact, he called Abraham out of a life of paganism, of idolatry. He wasn't worshiping the true God when he was called. God saved him where he was. So despite his rebellion, God saved him. And that's a beautiful thing is that, is that for you and for me, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God redeems rebellion. That's, that's what he does. He says, no matter where you are right now, I can use you. No matter what you're doing in your life, I can use you. He also likes to grow us and, and change us for the betterment of our lives and for community and for faithfulness, but he can use us no matter where we are, and he does. He redeems rebellion. It says in Romans 8.28, the author Paul writes, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God says, your rebellion, your failure, your mistakes, your mess-ups, your hurts, your anxiety, that doesn't, that doesn't define you. That doesn't stop me. I can use you. I can use you where you are. The other thing that stands out here is that um, very often in our lives, especially during times of trial, we see the part God sees the whole. So, for example, we've got Abraham here, and all he and Sarah saw was a barren womb. And God saw descendants as numerous as the stars. And Jacob saw a life of wandering, of living in fear of his brother. A life of traveling and going back and forth with his small group of family. And God, instead of seeing that, God saw him planted as a nation. And Moses saw rejection after rejection with Pharaoh. And God saw a Passover where his people would be free and eventually enter into a promised land. Now, it can be kind of tough for us when we talk about sacrifice, but this was, this was the thing that God did for a time. This was a short-term thing. This was something that uh, God established as a, as a gift to the people. In one sense, the, the people had a whole sacrificial system given by God because he wanted to have a visual display of their sin. It was very tangible. Just kind of like today, we, part we partook in communion, right? We got the tangible bread and wine in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We can taste it. We can smell it. It's like we're participating in it and it engages our senses. 
the sacrificial system kind of did that same thing for the Israelites, showing them their sin and the gravity of it. They could see it, smell it. But it was just for a time. And ultimately, what the sacrificial system was for was to save them. It's a temporary solution to save them from their sins so that the punishment for death would not be on the people, but would be on an animal. Now, they clung to this system. This was a system where they clung to it in order to be saved. In fact, when they did this, it, it, it made them right. It made them whole. It's pretty easy for us to, to look back on that, you know, sometimes called chronological snobbery, where we look back on people in the past and say, and say how foolish or archaic they were, simple-minded. But it's good to remember and ask ourselves, what, are there things that we cling to? Are there things that we look to work at and cling to and hold on to that make us right, that make us whole? You know, sometimes we will hold on to our ability, our capability for productivity. Like, I'm a doer, I get things done, that to-do list is no match for me. Like, I can knock this stuff out and take names, I'm doing it again tomorrow. Or we can hold on to our social media posts and say, like, I've curated and crafted a beautiful image right here of my family. Look how I look, everybody. I look at all the hearts and the comments and the caption. Kind of makes us feel right and whole. It could be the school we go to, the, the, the grades we get, the, the level of employment we have, climbing that ladder, all of these things we tend to give into and use to make ourselves feel right. Now, it doesn't mean those things are bad. Instagram posts in and of themselves aren't bad and, and, and excelling at work and being a doer. None of those things are, are bad. It's only when we take these, these things that are inherently, they're fine, they're good, we turn them into God. Take a good thing, make it a God thing. And, and that's when it becomes a problem. That's when we are essentially participating in our own sacrificial system. Because we, we use these things to, to give us, ultimately, identity. We use these things to define who we are. We find fulfillment in external things to define who we are. We try to create our own identity when we didn't create ourselves. We have to look to the creator for our identity. Because when all the Instagram goes away or when you can't work anymore or when you're sick or when you don't make it into that school, you're still valued. We still have worth. It can't be built on sand of success has to be built on the rock of Christ. And here's the beautiful thing about identity. No matter how we feel or what we think gives us identity, as believers in Jesus Christ, the beautiful thing is, is that our identity is not something that's achieved, it's something that is received. It's something that's given. Our identity is given to us by God. He says, you are my beloved children. And that's a gift. It's a gift saying, I love you and here's who you are. My wife and I have four kids, and they were born, and they're, they're into our family. They're the Winters kids, and they didn't have to earn it to get into our family. They didn't have to work hard to get that name. They were given that name at their birth. We are given that name at our new birth in Christ. God the Father says, I love you. I am here, and you are mine. 
John, uh, one of Jesus's apostles, was writing a letter to one of his churches as, as he was an older pastor. And he said, the Father has given us his love. He loves us so much that we are actually called God's dear children. And that's what we are. We're not children of God because we've done something, because we've earned it, because you came to church today, although I'm glad you did. Or, and, and we're not God's children because of a certain prayer we said or a certain verse we read. We're God's children because he gave us faith to believe in Jesus Christ. We're called his, and that's it. It's that simple. He gave us a promise that he would be faithful and that his son would take our sin and give us his life. Right before Jesus was beginning his earthly ministry, there was another guy named John, but this time this was John the Baptist. He, was a, not a, he's, he wasn't a Baptist uh, a denomination. He was a baptizer. And he, um, he, he walked around and said, I am here to prepare the way of the Lord. I am preparing the way for the coming Messiah. He said, repent and be baptized. He said this over and over. And eventually somebody said, well, where is this Messiah? He said, you know what? There he is. And the way he said it, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, I don't know if you remember from our text, but it said that, that they were to kill a lamb and paint its blood over their doorposts. Well, a little earlier, there was a little more detailed instruction, and it said it had to be a male lamb without blemish. John the Baptist takes that Passover sacrifice and connects it right to Jesus and says, here is the Lamb of God. Here is the true Lamb that will save you. This Lamb saved for a time, but sacrifices still needed to happen all the time in order to keep atoning for sin. But John says, that guy, he's the true Lamb. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the final sacrifice. He said, you want to find hope? You want to find faith? It's not in anything you can do. It's in Him. It's in Him. He says that Jesus Christ is the ultimate Lamb. Because Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He was without blemish. And he said, I choose to go to the cross. I choose to lay down my life. I choose to sacrifice for you so that your sin and my sin could be buried and defeated on the cross and not have eternal consequences. And we could be free and no longer will we be slaves to sin, but we would be free in Christ through his resurrection on the third day. And he's sitting in glory on a throne, welcoming people in faith. He says, you don't need to sacrifice anymore. I did it for you. We don't need to sacrifice to be saved. We have a Savior who was sacrificed. By God's grace, our hope is not found in what we do. It's not found in what we say. It's found in Him. And he takes us and he loves us and he cleanses us and gets us ready for new life. And he says, that's a promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for sending your son Jesus. We give thanks to you for providing a way of faith and life and hope and salvation in him. Thank you for Jesus Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection and for giving us a new hope to cling to. 
Please cleanse us and guide us and help us to not hold on and not try to claim our identity or create our identity or create wholeness outside and apart from anything other than you. Thank you for saving us and calling us by name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.